Hello, everyone. Welcome to Equals. This is Nadia. And for those joining us for the first time, this is a podcast about hope in the fight against inequality. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Equals. This is Nabil. I'm really excited about today's episode, an amazing interview with Gary Young. And just before we get there, we're in our third season now. For regular listeners, do please leave us a review. It really helps to get the podcast out there. But Nadia, you mentioned hope. And let me go there because even despite your, let's say, cynicism, surely even you're feeling hopeful after the inauguration of, uh, of President Biden. I, I mean, how can one not be? And yes, you're right. I am typically very cynical and I remain cynical, but I am also hopeful because we've come out of four years of darkness. I feel like a weight has been lifted, uh, but how can one not be hopeful? Come on. I mean, there were there were many happy moments to reflect on that day that will that will live in our memory. But I mean, one of them has to be Bernie Sanders's mittens, right? These amazing mittens. These mittens that went viral. I've never seen so many on social media before. And it's like the memes that were popping up. I mean, even Naomi Klein wrote an article asking what is the meaning or the mittenology of it all? So funny. I mean, the mitten on it, it all, all sounds very clever, but Nadia, listen, you've got to get me a pair before the next time we hook up. They're, they're already on order with our, our teacher in our, in our neighborhood. <laughs> but listen, it's, it's about the mittens, isn't it? It's about Senator Sanders, but it's also really about these kind of progressive ideas that, that he and, and so many others represent. Uh, of course. I mean, that's really what it was about, right? It was that people seeing on screen this person that represents these progressive ideas that they want to continue having strength in this in this next era. Um, and, and we need this strength of progressive ideas, right? At a time where there's just such deep inequality, not just here in the US, but around the world. Yeah, totally. Which brings us nicely to this week, because every year at this time, timed with the that festival of wealth, the Davos World Economic Forum, activists around the world, we kick up a storm, don't we, about, about inequality and the grotesque and rising inequality that we see. That's right. So why don't you let our guests know how many billionaires Oxfam is bashing this year? <laughs> so there are a few headlines, but, but check this. So the 10 richest billionaires on the planet, they're all men, by the way, they've increased their wealth by half a trillion dollars since March. Half a trillion. You know, whilst hundreds of millions of people are literally being pushed into poverty. I mean, we could be facing the biggest rise in inequality since records began. It is frightening stuff. That is just unbelievable. Um, it's really like we're living in two parallel universes, really. But I think one of the things to to reflect on is if we've learned anything from this past year, we can't just talk about wealth inequality in its silo, right? We've also got to talk about race, about gender. And if there was ever a time to connect these two, it's now. Absolutely. And, and our guest who we have today has been thinking and writing about these issues for, for a long time, well before they were cool to do so. But it's a real honor to have Gary Young, the writer, the amazing thinker on the show today. Yes. And, and he was at The Guardian for decades, a journalist. Who was, he was a columnist, editor at large. He was their U.S. correspondent at some point. I mean, this is a man who has just seen so much and he's been there covering the important stories of our times, right? He was there on the campaign trail with, with Nelson Mandela in post-apartheid South Africa's first democratic election. He's written extensively about the civil rights movement in the US, really fascinating stuff. Totally, Nadia. And, and let me say, you know, just on a very personal level, I know that I'm part of a whole generation that grew up being influenced by Gary's writings. I remember I remember reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, and it was Gary Young who provided the introduction to that amazing book. 
Very cool, very cool. And of course, now Gary's at Manchester University. He's a professor of sociology. I wish I could be one of his students. I mean, it is the best university in the world, you know? <laughs> Let's <laughs> so be honest. I've heard. I've heard that from one Nabil Ahmed who attended Manchester yeah, University. Sounds like, it sounds like a cool guy. But listen, should, should we stop <laughs> praising Gary and, and get to the interview? Yeah, definitely. Let's do it. Hello, welcome, Gary. Thanks so much for making the time. I, I know it's a, a busy schedule for you, so really happy that you made it. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Nadia. Gary, it is really a pleasure and a, a real honor to have you on. Um, so let, let's get straight into it because, you know, we've we've been remembering MLK. I found myself rereading MLK's Hi, I Have a Dream speech last week. So much reflection just after the kind of year we've had, Black Lives Matter, but, you know, the sheer deadliness of, of inequality. Gary, You've gone deep on this, right? You know, in the US, but but also beyond the US. You know, how close do you think we are to realizing King's vision? Uh, not very, really. Would be the truth of it. I mean, true, an awful lot has changed since 1963, which was his most famous speech, but not necessarily in many ways his most important work. It's true that in 1963, a significant section of the globe was either under segregation or colonialism, couldn't vote, didn't have the basic rights of citizenship. So we've, we've moved ahead from that. But, and King pointed this out in, in later years, having the uh, right to eat in a restaurant, but if you don't have the money to actually afford what's on the menu, then it's really an abstract right. And... I did. I wrote a book about the uh, speech at the March on Washington. And there's a bit that is often quoted, you know, of uh, the content of their character, not the color of their skin that people should be judged by. A bit less quoted is where he says, um, America issued us a promissory note and it came back with insufficient funds. And we're here to cash that check. And if you look at the state of African-Americans now, the degree to which... The, the wealth disparity, the income disparity, the unemployment disparity, then America has a huge amount of work to do. And one of the things that was interesting about Black Lives Matter was how it pollinated all over the world and that in various corners of the world, it found a home for people who are uh, dispossessed and discriminated against, which speaks to the degree to which this is not purely an American problem. It actually translates very easily all over the world. And the other thing about King that is often forgotten was, first of all, he was incredibly militant against war. And this was when he fell out of favor, when he called Johnson out over the Vietnam War and called America the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. But he also talked about economic and wealth redistribution. In um, his speech, Where Do We Go From Here? He says, why are there 40 million poor people in America? When you begin to ask that question, you're raising a question about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And then he goes on, when you deal with this, you begin to ask the question, who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that's two-thirds water? And so he understands anti-racism as being only possible with a fundamental transformation of society, which is not the same as children singing Kumbaya. It's really interesting to hear you say all this. And I think, I mean, one of the things that I think about is the March on Washington was was not just about race, it was about jobs. And, and as you said, MLK really 
brought these issues together. And, and we've seen you do that a lot in your writings, you know, that these issues are not siloed. It's not just about wealth inequality. It's about race and gender. And at this time of year where we're seeing astronomical wealth on display with the gathering of billionaires at Davos, how should we be thinking about bringing these issues together today in today's context? And what have you seen and experienced that helps you bring these issues together? I think that it's not possible to understand racism and race in the West independently of class. And it's not possible to understand class independently of race. And the same is true it's intersectional thinking for gender, sexuality. You know, I am many things, black, male, middle class, um, uh, British, uh, the child of immigrants, but I'm also one thing, which is myself. And I don't stop being those other things while I am this one thing. And that the moments at which working class people have had their most significant gains is when they've been united. And the moments when black people have had their most significant gains is when they have uh, in the West is when they have been part of a broader coalition. And that if you look at who's poor and where is poor and why they're poor, then you can see a kind of um, a historical lineage to this poverty, which it's unfathomable without it, You that you can't understand where Africa is in relation to Western Europe or America without understanding colonialism. Uh, you can't understand where black people are in America without understanding slavery and imperialism. And that those things don't just stop because we get bored. They don't just stop because they were a long time ago. They remain issues until they are addressed. Just for an example, to take um, journalism in Britain, where there's a higher proportion of people who went to a private school and then Oxford or Cambridge, the two most elite universities, there's a higher proportion of them, those people who are newspaper columnists than sit in the House of Lords. Well, just to take the notion of race and class, very few black people get to go to elite colleges and private schools. Very few working class people get to go to elite colleges and private schools. In a setting where you have very few working class people, you will have very few black people in, in the West. And we saw this with COVID the disproportionate numbers of black people, both in America and here in Britain, and other minorities, Bangladeshi, Pakistani, and uh, Indian. It's not that the virus prefers black people. It's not that the virus discriminates. It's that society has discriminated in ways that means they are more likely to live in cramped surroundings, more likely to work on buses, trains, and tubes, where it's public places, more likely to be nurses. And they're not suffering because they're black, they're suffering because they're poor, and black people are more likely to be poor. And so any demand that black people make around COVID for better testing and tracing, for better shielding, for better PPE, will benefit all poor people, and that will benefit everyone. And one of the things that this virus has shown us, and this, this period has shown us, is that you can try and silo yourself off in terms of class or race or nation, but we're all interconnected. If the developing world and the underdeveloped world don't get the, these vaccines, then we will still have the virus in the world. It will still come and get us. So um, yeah. we're in a moment of, if, if we open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds, a real realisation about the degree to which it is 
possible, plausible, feasible, or even desirable to understand ourselves separately. Yeah, that's really well put, Gary. You know, Gary, really, I really do relate. I'm from, I'm, I'm in Kenya now, but I'm from Britain. My, you know, my, 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 my stepdad's a bus driver. We're ethnic Pakistanis. I mean, we feel it up close. But you know, it's practically trying to trying to connect these issues, Gary. What, what, what's, what's stopping us from, you know, practically bringing race and class together in the? Is it a lack of, is it a lack of language that's there? Can we be talking about you know, billionaire wealth and, and, and how that's connected to white supremacy? There's, there can be a lack of imagination, first of all, that likes to understand people as just one thing, that someone can be rich and black, can be a capitalist oppressor and still uh, endure racism, that someone can be poor and white, can inflict racism and enjoy a privilege as a, uh, as a result of their race and yet suffer poverty. So there is a kind of, um, there is a desire to simplify and to reduce. And then I think that there is a, there is an issue of kind of formation or capacity, a kind of framing that we've lost really, not completely, but to some extent about kind of what the problem is. I'll give a a parallel example, which is that I did, uh, my last book was about all of the kids who were shot dead in one day in America. It's called Another Day in the Death of America. And when I asked the parents of the children who died, what do you think this is about? When I asked the open-ended question, none of them mentioned guns, none of them, because what are you going to do about guns? Do you know what I mean? They're kind of everywhere. And uh, when I said, what do you think of guns? And they had opinions. But when I said, what do you think this is about? What do you think is going on here? Guns doesn't come up. And I I conclude that it's a bit like traffic. If somebody, if your kid was run over and you said, what do you, what do you think? You'd say, well, maybe there should be a stoplight. Maybe there should be a stop sign. Maybe we should change the, the speed limit. But no one's going to say we need to get rid of traffic because you can't imagine a world without traffic. <laughs> And that it was just kind of imagining a world without guns or racism or poverty, which also never came up. They just kind of, well, you know. And so instead they would talk about other parents and how they don't love their kids enough. And yeah, because that was something that you could do something about, something that you, something tangible that you could maybe see or imagine or had experience of. Even when they were themselves being condemned in the press for allowing their child to stay out late or whatever it was. And to come back to your question, I feel that we can be a bit like that when it comes to poverty and inequality, that in the absence of a framing about how inequality happens, who's getting the profits, who's doing the work, who needs the rights, in the absence of that framing and in the absence of major movements pushing against that, people are more likely to turn on themselves or each other and to talk about the asylum seeker or the aroma, the gypsy, the black, the Jew, the whoever, and to say, well, it's them and, and they've got my biscuit. The fact that somebody else has got 29 biscuits escapes you but they have mine and and I, I see green shoots of that emerging that you know politically around the world there are there is a renewed conversation about capitalism what it does what it doesn't do what it's worth what alternatives there might be even in America and that's what kind of um that's what gives me hope but I, I feel that absent that framing there is a sense that well there are these billionaires in Davos I can't do anything about them. 
But then there were these asylum seekers who were taking our jobs or taking our, you know, taking our food or whatever it is. And so I'm going to talk about them instead. They feel more tangible. They feel more available. You know, the market is invisible. The single hand of the market is invisible. The kind of um, globalization is this neoliberal globalization. It's this force without a face. And so people look for a face. Gary, I, I want to ask you, uh, go back to something you were mentioning about our imagination, um, about our framework for understanding what's around us. And, and the media plays a huge role in shaping the way people see things. And you've long been a journalist all over the world. But we've often seen the journalistic community's refusal to cover issues that go deep into challenging establishment power, the elite and the status quo, things that can really help us understand this, this framework. Um, what, what do we do about that? And in your experience, how real are the strings of wealth, of media ownership? How much are those actually constraining the ability of journalists to cover these difficult issues? I mean, what's particularly scary is that you don't need an owner to tell you what to write or what not to write. You just need a culture that says, oh, that's not going to get in. That's, and once the culture has been set, right. then people work within the parameters of, of that culture. And that for those who don't want to succumb to that, I would say once again, there is, it, it's not that it's not possible. I mean, the argument will be, would be, this is boring and we know this already. And I kind of like to describe this as a bit like when I was at journalism school, they would say, and one of the things, we, you know, we learned all these adages and one was when a dog bites a man, they always use the man. That's not a story. Dogs often bite people. But when a man bites a dog, that's a story. But sooner or later, you have to ask yourself, well, who owns these dogs? And why do the same people get keep getting bitten? What can we do about these dogs? If you don't feel that you're affected by the poverty, the racism, the inequality, the poor housing, if it's not in your world, then it's boring. It's always with us. It's a kind of flip side of the thing that I was saying before about kind of um, traffic. It's, it's always with us. And so let's, let's not talk about something that isn't going to change and that, frankly, we all know. And I think that kind of a lot of that is just, I mean, as well as being wrong-headed. First of all, if you had more diverse people in newsrooms, different kinds of people, then people would be saying, well, it's not boring for me. It's actually my life. So, can, you know, can we up, up the standard of this conversation? But secondly, that if you were interested, it just takes a more imaginative way of looking at these things and saying, yes, poverty is not new. But the fact that, the fact that it's still with us should be new. Yeah. And we have to find ways to maintain a vivid sense of what it means and what it does. And that is a challenge. If you had at the front page of every day of a newspaper, child dies with, of hunger, people would stop reading it and say, well, you said that yesterday. And so you have to make those children real. You have to make the cause of the hunger real. You have to kind of find different ways to engage with the world that we live in. But actually what they do, which is less actually about the individual owners of a newspaper and more about the politics of the society that we live in, which makes their ownership possible, is to change that culture of journalism into a kind of world where people actually want to write about the world as it is and not as they would like it to be or just because they get bored. That's that's really that's really interesting, Gary. And look, and what, I mean, it's been interesting kind of contrasting your own journalism, right, in, in, you know, in the UK with others and even in the US with others. I, 
I'll, I'll never forget that uh, that interview, if we can even call it an interview that you did with Richard Spencer. But um, but going 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 to the US now, Gary, because you know you talk about things that need to change, and one of the big things that need to change in the world right now is, is policies in the United States. So mm. we've had this inauguration, lots of hope. Bernie's mittens, all that. Um, <laughs> I love Bernie's mittens. We I just, oh yeah, we should we should probably do a whole episode on on the symbolism of, of Bernie's mittens. But look, what I what I do want to ask you, Gary, is, is this that you know, um, uh, you know, Nadia and I are familiar with just a, a range of people out there across the states who you know want to imagine Trump never happened. It's a bit like Lord Voldemort, right? Mm. You know, he who must not be named, right? Um, and who feel like excited? We're about to enter a happier, call it a cuddlier USA with Biden now in. You know, what do you say? What do you say to that? I share the relief, the joy that Trump has gone. I do. My trouble is when people say now we can get back to normal because normal was what got us there, mm. and that what Trump actually exposed clearer than anything else that came before was how deep-rooted the challenges are in terms of both transforming society and the state and people's minds. How America in particular does a very good job of reinvention. It's one of the things in a way that is kind of quite attractive about it, but it means it always has this kind of lost innocence, which is very careless about because it keeps losing it. We need to have some sense of a bigger possibility And that demands an offer, a concrete offer that goes beyond kumbaya, let's all get together. So I understand why people are relieved that he's gone. I hope against his actual record to date, meaning what he has done when he has been in the Senate and so on, which is not um, transformative and has been actually quite reactionary, that he ends up like LBJ, who showed very little promise, I would say, is progressive and was a kind of reach across the aisle, grab someone by the nuts, usually. I mean, very kind of a, a, a kind of aggressive deal maker and a kind of creature of the Congress, who emerged in this moment completely in a completely unlikely fashion with the assassination of JFK, and brought us a Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Medicaid and Medicare, among other things, and the Vietnam War. I mean, it wasn't all great. So I, I, I hope that he turns into that guy. There's no evidence to date that that's in him, but that's, that's what I hope for. But I'm, you know, I'm not putting out the bunting yet. I mean, it's important to kind of, this is one of those things of keeping more than, more than one idea in our head at the same time. We need to imagine that a better world is possible, a better world, not the world that we had before. But we also have to bear in mind that a worse one is also possible. And we just avoided a worse one, but now right. I want a better one. And so thinking about, you know, a better world is possible. And, you know, this is coming to the end of the interview where we we also like to end on a hopeful note. Um, but as progressives, we find ourselves, you know, forever berated for being unrealistic and thinking that this other world is possible and maybe even hearing the word utopian. So what is the place of, of idealism in politics? I think it's central. I think idealism is central, that you have to imagine that Martin Luther King on August the 28th, 1963, reaches the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and doesn't have a dream, but says, I have a 10-point plan that will get us from here and get us this legislation through Congress and that. But he didn't, he had a dream. And he looked above and beyond what he saw in that moment. Within a month, I think, four little girls had been firebombed in Birmingham. 
and said, look, we, you know, we need a, a better world. And it's very, it's essential to have a vision of the world that we want. Of course, we know that it's not going to come tomorrow, that you can't dream all the time. You've got to wake up and go out and actually do the hard work. But um, all sorts of things. And I, I do cite my own life, not in a Horatio Alger way, but I was born in 1969, the third son of immigrant, black immigrant family in Britain. My dad would leave 15 months later. Nobody looked at me and thought, you're going to be a professor. And to me, what that shows is that all sorts of things are possible that you can't see yet, but that you have to, it's incumbent on you to imagine. In the absence of imagining our own utopia, the world we want to live in, where you can have the leave that is necessary to kind of raise a healthy family and, uh, and all of those things, dystopias will intervene. The other people are dreaming and they're dreaming of terrible things. They're dreaming, their dreams are our nightmares. But there's a range of things that we see now that were not dreamt of even 20 years ago. Gay marriage, who knew that this, that's where we would be? So it is absolutely crucial. I remember interviewing a woman who introduced, it wasn't even civil partnerships, it was 1972 Democratic Convention and she introduced the, just the notion that gay people shouldn't be kind of beaten up in the street that there should be certain protections for gay people. And it was voted down on a voice vote. And she said, we wouldn't have even dreamed of gay marriage then, but these things don't come out, these are her words, they don't come out of the head of Zeus. We were working the whole time to create a world in which we could live and be and love as kind of ordinary human beings. And, and this is the world that we live in now where notwithstanding all the other problems, they can do that. So it's absolutely fundamental and absolutely crucial that we, alongside our hard-headed, pragmatic, day-to-day -day work, that we dream about the direction in which we're going. Gary, a huge, huge thank you. What a, what a note to end on. Um, I, I do believe that's a, that's a message that needs to be heard, right, in, in every capital and every, every town around the world. A huge thank you, Gary. It's been, it's been a real pleasure having you on and, and reading your writings over the years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nabila. Thank you, Nadia. Thank you. Nadia, there we have it. It's okay to dream. It's right to dream. And we can imagine a world without billionaires, a world of, you know, true racial and gender equality. I'm, I'm imagining that. Are, are you with me? I am with you. And I think that, you know, the whole point is that this all has to be part of the same dream, right? This world of... of Wealth and gender and racial equality is one dream, and, and not just that it's right to dream, but necessary to do so. Nice. Nicely put. Hey, and there's a lot to say. I mean, it was an incredible interview, but before we jump off, I've got some big news to share. We are launching another Equals product today. Absolutely. Folks out there, we are very pleased and excited to be launching our Equals blog. It's going to be at equalshope.org. You can click onto there now, equalshope.org. Org, a blog about hope in the fight against inequality. Really exciting stuff. It is exciting. And you know, I was just thinking, actually, while Gary was speaking, I kept thinking, oh, man, I wish I had a pen and paper and I was taking notes. And now <laughs> it's going to get done for me. Mini transcripts. Totally, mini transcripts and the blog is going to have also just a range of pieces about inequality in a really digestible way. And shall I tell you what I'm excited about, Nadia, that you know how every Saturday I wake up looking forward to reading stories from Max, our co-host. He writes every other week about data and stories from history about inequality. Well, they're going to be on the blog too. 
That is awesome. Those are, those are pretty world famous by now. Actually, have you read his <laughs> yeah, latest? Have you read his latest one on Bridgerton? I, I might even watch it after that. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's Bridgerton, Nadia English. You know, um... Bridgerton, Bridgerton. <laughs> got it. Got it. No, I I mean an amazing blog though. I've uh, I've not seen it. I've never really been into a period costume drama. But anyway, equals hope org people do check it out um our next episode in a couple of weeks is going to be with pilato oh looking forward to that music artist activist extraordinaire from zambia really brilliant guy do join us next time for that bye everyone thanks for listening 